live and pre-recorded. This is the Red Ticket Blues Podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is being recorded on November 11th, Veterans Day, to hit the internets on November 12th. How's everybody doing? If you're new to the show, you can always listen on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and if you're not new to the show, you can continue listening on the, all those fine podcast venues. You can follow me at BrianBuck13 and at Red Ticket Blues on Twitter. Today is our weekly Thursday talk and I was lucky enough to have Joe Giglio on with me to discuss a uh, myriad of topics. Joe is a sports talk show host and 94.1 in Philadelphia, and he is also a sports community engagement specialist for NJ.com. Uh, again, I appreciate Joe coming on, and uh, let's let's cut the blabber and actually just get to it. Here's Joe. So as promised, we welcome in Joe Gillio, a sports talk show host for WIP 94.1 in Philadelphia, WFAN 660 in New York, and sports community engagement specialist for NJ.com. Joe, welcome to the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Hey, Brian. Happy to be here, man. Uh, So let's jump right into it. Today, Wednesday, the New York Yankees made some moves trading Jose Perella and John Ryan Murphy. In your latest piece for NJ.com, you propose a different sort of trade the Yankees should explore. Tell us a little bit about that proposal. Yeah, it really feels like the Yankees, and we've seen this over the last couple of years, where they just don't have the kind of funds, or at least they're not allowing Brian Cashman to have the kind of funds to, you know, have a Dodgers type of payroll, where they can just go out and get whoever they want every year. So it seems like they're always looking for creative ways to cut a few dollars off so they can sign someone they want. And the way I look at it, Greg Bird came up at first base last year and really showed that I think he's ready to play on an everyday basis. Mark Teixeira going to the last year of his deal. Uh, owed over $23 million. But for one year, there really aren't any one bad one-year contracts, at least for most teams. So I think there would be a market for a Teixeira who hit over 30 home runs before he got hurt. I mean, I think the Yankees could explore that. I know Brian Cashman did say on Wednesday that ideally they have Teixeira healthy to start the year and, and Bird's back in the minors. But if they found a team that would take on Teixeira uh, and allow them to bring up Bird and you know free up $23 million and go after a pitcher or whatever they want to do, I think that would work. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I really appreciate Teixeira's production and everything, but he's very hard to rely on every year. I mean, even in a pennant race like this year, you're 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 wondering what can he give you. And a healthy Teixeira can give you a lot. So he is attractive to other teams. Hey, from, uh, I mean, I, I'd like to see it. I have nothing against Mark, but I think it would be a good move for the Yankees. I, I agree with you. Uh, so you're from Howell, New Jersey. Um and New Jersey, much like Connecticut, where I'm from, uh, there's a battleground. You're, you're stuck between two sports cities. With that being said, what teams did you root for growing up? So the one team, and, and my friends and you know people I knew always thought I was weird when I was young, and I guess it, it kind of worked out itself because now I work in multiple markets and I, I've watched all these teams. But the one team that had my heartstrings as a kid was the New York Yankees. I grew up a Yankees fan. I was... Um, I was born in 1986, but I was 10 years old in 1996 when the dynasty started nine in 1995. That team, that was my team. So I've always been a Yankees fan. Um, I never quite had the same type of feel for any other team like the Yankees. So uh, whether it comes to Eagles Giants, talking on both teams or in the basketball teams or whatever, it's never been hard for me to, to do that uh, and to watch Philly and New York teams or any teams. But uh, the New York Yankees, that dynasty, that, that was my team growing up. So, I mean, you sort of answered my next question here, which was going to be, did your interest in sports start immediately? You're talking about when you're 10 years old. Uh, I read you wanted to be a Major League Baseball general manager when you were younger. Uh, was it 
So was was a world a, a work environment of sports is something sports related always a goal of yours from a young age? It always was, and yeah, it started. Uh, it probably started as early as I can remember. I remember recording for, just for no reason, just to watch the game. I must have been six or seven years old, and I used to ask for VHS tapes to record the Yankees on uh, Channel 11. That's why you know my family wasn't going to be home to watch the game, or I had to go to sleep, or whatever it was, because I was six. Um, and I did that, and I used to watch the recording back, which is kind of crazy now that I remember this as we talk. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I always always wanted to work at sports. I always wanted to be somewhere around it. I went to school at the Sales University up in uh, near Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I was a sport management major. And I, I had an internship lined up at some point during my tenure there to go out to Arizona for a summer, um, and I had a connection to Josh Burns, who was then the general manager of the Diamondbacks, and now he's in the Dodgers front office. And I don't know what happened, but I, I started to have kind of a different aspiration and different feel for what I wanted to do. And I said, maybe I want to talk about sports rather than work in sports. And uh, one thing led to another, and I ultimately didn't take that internship. And, uh, and here I am now talking to you on this podcast. Hey, wonderful! Again, appreciate you have uh, appreciate you being here. Uh, you bring up Arizona as a possible you know destination going forward, but uh, I mean you've 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 been in different marketplaces. You've you've worked in markets such as Maryland or as far away as San Diego. What what's brought you back to the area you grew up in and your roots? Uh, well, it's it's been a kind of kind of a combination of where the opportunities are. So yeah. I bounced around. When I first started, my, the first thing I ever did on the radio was I, out of school, I sent my tapes out, and that didn't work, and I was kind of just working you know, part-time jobs to make some money, trying to figure out where I'm going, what I'm doing. Uh, and then I landed a two-hour-a-day talk show in Monmouth County, or actually Ocean County, New Jersey, talking about high school sports. The first interview I did was, I think, with a girls' basketball high school coach. I mean, like, that kind of stuff. Right. And I made maybe 10 bucks an hour, if that. It was you know, just to get my foot in the door. And I ultimately stayed in that company for a couple of years. Um, they let me do a couple of shows down in uh, Atlantic City on an ESPN affiliate to that for a little while. And then the company changed hands. Uh, they cut my shows. I was out of radio. I was out of work. I just had gotten married. Uh, so I started writing a little bit more. I, as you said, Baltimore is to drive down there on the weekends and do a show for free, um, 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning for free. My wife thought I was crazy, um, and I did that for a couple months until uh, WSA and Fantasy Phenom, I, I saw it rolling around again, I think, for the third time, and I said, i, I got to try this, and, and that led to uh, the WSAN. So it's been, a, it's been a wacky ride and just you know, finding opportunities as they, uh, as they present themselves. And, and perfect segue, uh, in 2012, you entered into the WFAN Fantasy Phenom Contest. For people that aren't familiar with it, uh, the winner gets their own show on WFAN for a year. Now, I've never gone to any of these auditions, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine many of the competitors probably didn't have the experience uh, you had. Did you, did you feel that your, your experience in sports broadcasting, sports talk, uh, was a distinct advantage? I thought it gave me a real shot. Yeah, the one thing, as I mentioned to you, I've been doing some radio before then, I, I didn't know the rules, and I honestly didn't feel comfortable uh, with the employer I worked for before, even though it was just, you know, a small-time thing. I just didn't feel comfortable entering in the first two years of the contest, the one where Greg Sussman won and then John Jastrzemski uh, won the second one. But then when I was out of work, 
uh, in the third year, I said, all right, I, I got to give this a chance. And I remember telling my wife, because we were actually living in Maryland at that time. We bounced around uh, a little bit after um, I got laid off and, and she was still working in Maryland because that's where she's originally from. Um, so I was, we were living there and we had just moved out of New Jersey to Maryland a couple months before that. And I told her I was going up to New Jersey to audition for the fan. And she like, just looked at me like we just moved. here. Um, I mean, she obviously was supportive and said, go for it. But uh, I think, I think I told her that, Hey, I said, my goal is just to try to make it to the next stage. And there were three different stages of the contest. I was like, I'll just see if I can get to the next one and we'll go from there. Uh, and then that's, that's kind of just how it was. So I, I thought I had a chance just based on I knew how to talk about sports, but it's a weird environment. And you said you've never been to one of them, but it's, it's like a two-minute almost stand-up comedy atmosphere, but you're talking about sports and trying to impress, you know, the, the biggest station in the country. It's, it's a weird dynamic. Yeah, it seems like a real meat market there. Uh, I mean, I've seen videos. It just sort of next person, next person, as everyone sort of ogles you as you stand up on stage trying, you know, in a very high-pressure system – uh, environment <laughs> competing for a job uh, so I mean that's it's got to be difficult but again you had the experience so like you said you probably it gave you a shot like you said um, so at that point you're hosting on WFAN as you presently do on WIP in Philadelphia now a lot of people have their own ideas of sports talk show hosts some think they know nothing some think they uh, well excuse me callers think that the host knows nothing or callers think the host knows everything when you start your shift as a sports talk guy, I mean, how do you prepare? What goes into preparation when you know you're about to work? See, this, I always think it's a funny question because there are a lot of people I know, friends of mine, uh, co-workers in, in my other job who just think it's like, you know, you, you like sports, you show up, you talk about sports, but that really isn't what it is. At least, I don't, at least that's not the way I approach it and the way I think the successful uh, people in this business approach it. Steve Summers, who... Um, my year at WFM, my first year, my fantasy phenom year, I always had the, what I think is the privilege to follow Steve Summers because he always does the night shift and uh, the fantasy phenom winner for that year comes on at 1 a.m. So Steve would always end the shift and I would go on. And so I got a chance to know him a little bit and talk to him and he would give me um, some criticism, constructive criticism when I saw him from the last week, you know, based on his drive home listening to me. And he told me once that this isn't a job it's a lifestyle. Like, if you think it's a job, it's going to be very difficult to do. Uh, if, if you treat it as a lifestyle and you have to be a sports crazy person to do it, uh, then you can do it well. But uh, as far as preparation, it's, it's just always. And it's always watching games. And uh, before a show, I usually like to get to the station at least a couple hours early just to uh, listen to what's going on audio-wise, make sure I have all my notes, make sure I have all uh, kind of the topic points I want to get to. And um, I always over-prepare over because uh, I guess it's back in the day when I hosted that show, talking about high school sports, I never had a caller once on that show. So I had to oh, fill that's rough. hours of content. <laughs> right, so I got used to filling hours of content by myself. So if no one calls the show, I could do the show by myself, but obviously callers better. Yeah, speaking of callers, I'll say this. I know you probably can't comment on it, but a large amount of people that call into sports radio don't know what they're talking about. Uh, they either have no point, or they just want to be plain disruptive. How do you, how do you deal with callers that you know maybe just want their five minutes of fame? Yeah, I, I think every moment's probably different. Depends on the, the conversation. Depends on uh, maybe the situation. But sometimes it could be uh, annoying. But then sometimes you can have fun with it too. And I think um, obviously Mike Francesa 
gets the most calls of anyone because he's on the most and he's got the biggest show. And I think he deals with that kind of stuff pretty well. I always think he, whether or not he's doing it on purpose, he, he makes it kind of funny, I think, for the audience uh, to listen to his reaction to it. So, look, I, I don't get mad. I, that's not my personality. I don't yell and scream and get mad at people. But uh, I think if you're doing it just to be, just to ruin the show, that will bother me more than if someone just doesn't know what they're talking about because, you know, I guess that's why the host is there or other callers are there to, to kind of change the conversation and, and tell them they're wrong. But I'll never get mad at that if you're just wrong or don't know about something. But if you do just call in to on purpose ruin the show, like, I, I never got that. Have you ever lost your call with a cooler? Uh, call with a cooler. Jeez. little uh, all over the place. Have you ever lost your cool with a caller? That's a good question. You know, it probably has happened once or twice. I'm trying to remember now. I think maybe someone at one point tried to hijack a topic and just, like, throw something else out there. And, like, I might raise my voice, but I always try to keep it on the subject. Like, I'm not going to really yell at the person. But uh, if it's happened, it's, it's rare. I can't really remember an instance or two. Working in two high-passion sports cities, be honest, Joe, crazier callers, New York or Philadelphia? Great question. I, I knew I had a feeling you'd, you'd throw something out uh, in that realm. I that's a good question. I, I think the I'll say this: the difference to me is the New York callers, and maybe it's just because it's a bigger market, it's the biggest market. They they always just naturally want to call the fan and talk. Like in Philadelphia, to me, it's more on the host to set an agenda, set a topic, and it's a big station and 24 hours a day. So there's always callers when you do that. But the, the callers there will kind of more wait for you, wait for you to say, this is what we're going to talk about, this is my opinion on it. While in New York, I can remember shows where I would come on and I'd give my monologue and, um, you know, whatever it would be about. Maybe it's football season for Giants, Jets. And then there'd be two or three callers right away on what I'm talking about, but then three or four callers beyond, you know, right after that with their own agenda. They want to talk about the Yankees offseason or the Mets trade. Like, in New York, they're just passionate in a way that, they always want to talk about what's on their mind 24 hours a day. Philadelphia has a sense a little bit that they just want to react to what you say. So that's the subtle differences. But I'll say this. I don't think I've ever encountered a more passionate fan base than Philadelphia Eagles fans. And I don't, not to disparage the Yankees fans or Mets fans are very passionate, very passionate. But there's something about Eagles fans. It's just it's through the roof. I've never experienced anything like it. You host a uh, two podcasts for NJ.com, a Giants podcast, Talk is Cheap, and the aforementioned Eagles and a podcast called The No Huddle Show. I think we can admit both these teams are not good, uh, but in a division that stinks, that doesn't really matter. You, you host a podcast chronicling both these teams. At this point in the season, who has the best shot come January? Well, I'm gonna, I'll answer it, but I'll first cop out by saying I've fought all year that this thing is coming down to week 17. I'll be surprised if that we don't have an NFC championship game, you know, de facto game in week 17, which I'm sure NBC is going to love and jump all over and uh, probably put it to prime time if, if they're able to do that. I think the Giants have a very good chance if they can get to that game of winning it and, and, get, and beating the Eagles. I think they, they're due to beat them to me. I mean, it, it's, it's been a weird – they've been beaten up by the Eagles a lot lately. But based on the team's – and the rosters they have. I just worry about the Giants' pass rush, even with Pierre Paul back. I actually think the Eagles, if they get themselves together, 
have a better chance to make some noise in January, win a game or two, surprise people even though they were 9-7. and seven. I'm just not sure if they're going to put it together. So I, I actually give the Giants a better chance of getting to the postseason because I trust them more right now. But the Eagles, to me, I thought they had a higher ceiling all year. They just really struggled to find that so far this season. Yeah, not not to uh, just completely agree with your take there, but I'm going to completely agree with your take. I think the personnel on the Eagles – makes them a more dangerous team. But you're right, they haven't been able to put it together uh, the way that everyone expected to. I just think the Giants' personnel, which may not be as great, they seem to just be getting it done in the right games here. Uh, My next question you sort of stole here, you think that game, that last game of the season when they play each other, will mean something. I guess my secondary question would be, will either of these teams be over 500 on Week 17? I think at least one will be. It's not both. I can see them both being eight and seven going into the game. And it's a winner take all. Obviously, no wild card for, for a loser there at eight and eight. Uh, I could also see one at eight and seven, the other at seven and eight, that type of thing. I think last week and Sunday night's game with the Eagles and Cowboys buried the Cowboys. I know mathematically they're obviously still there, and Romo will be back in a week. I just don't think you can recover from six straight losses. And they still have Green Bay, still have Carolina on that schedule. But I think even with Romo back, they're out of it. And, yeah, so I could, I think at least one to answer your question. But um, it wouldn't surprise me if they're both 8-7 heading into the game. Yeah, the Cowboys stink. They're done. Um, but you never know with the Redskins as well. Not much faith in them. But they, they're they're sort of lurking. But still, I I, 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 they're, I mean, it's a two-team race at this point. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, the, the NFL regular season will be over in, in a month and a half. So going through the dark, cold Northeast winter, who should area fans be more excited about? Jaleel Okafor with the Sixers or Kristaps Porzingis with the Knicks? You know, personally for me, just as a basketball fan, and I, I have never had a basketball team. Like, I've never been close to an allegiance. I just have always loved the NBA and individual players. So I've been particularly interested in this rookie class because I think it's, it's so dynamic. There's so many guys in this class I think are going to be outstanding players, you know, all-stars uh, for years to come. I like Porzingis better long-term. I, I worry a lot about Okafor's defense, though he's very, very gifted um, as a low-post scorer, as gifted as any that we've seen coming to the NBA in a while. He's a kind of a throwback big. But Porzingis is fun, and uh, he hasn't even really shot the ball that well yet, and he's getting everyone excited. So I, I think the ceiling of Porzingis is higher, but I think they're both going to be really good, good players. Yeah, Porzingis, I... Uh... I guess I sort of joined everyone who was at the draft that booed the pick. I, I really didn't see this this explosiveness, what, we're, what we've seen so far. It's, it's sort of been a shock. So I'm excited to see him as well. But Jaleel Okafor, I, think, I don't think we've even scratched the surface with him. I think with a lot of hard work and experience, he could be an, a much better player than he even showed at Duke. Uh, I want to thank Joe Giglio for being on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. But before you leave, to play us out, I have three questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is the best sports book you've ever read? Next Man Up, uh, John Feinstein's book. Uh, I think it was 2004, Baltimore Ravens. Just, I, I think it was a book ahead of its time and uh, just kind of chronicling. I mean, he got to follow around an NFL team for a full year and talk about the ins and outs of it. I thought it was a really, really well done book. I may not agree with uh, every commentary John Feinstein has with the uh, – sports minutes you hear on the radio, but he is a damn good author. Uh, tons of his, but I mean, season on the brink. I mean, that is a classic. I have not read uh, next man up, but I will definitely have to check that out. Question two, Jim Nance or Joe Buck? 
Joe Buck. I always, and particularly in Philadelphia, um, where I think the fans there, Jerry Surrey, they just feel like everyone is against them. It's just a kind of Philadelphia thing, and especially with announcers. I always, whenever Joe Buck has a big game or a big call, I always find a way to work it into my show because I love Joe Buck. I think he is, I think he's phenomenal. And to me, to do what he did and to get those gigs he, he landed on Fox, at, even he was in his mid-20s calling world, you know, calling playoff games, World Series games, NFL playoff games. I think Joe Buck's great. So I don't dislike Nance, but that one's easy for me. That's Joe Buck. You know, again, not to agree with you, but people that listen to my podcast, I say it all the time. I think it's a trendy thing to dislike Joe Buck. I don't think most people that – I think most people that say they don't like Joe Buck don't even know why. They just say it to say it because you're supposed to like not like the broadcasters. I totally agree with that. And, then that, and people complain sometimes that he's, um, he's not, he doesn't get too excited. But when you're a national broadcaster, like you have to be down the middle. And I think when, he, when it's a big moment, he lets you know it's a big moment. And I just think that a guy like that has been around broadcasting and great broadcasting his whole life. He picks up a lot from his daddy. You and I, are, we know what we're talking about here. Right. Joe Buck's great. Uh, I, it's funny. I had Neil Best on a few, a few, uh, about a month or month or two ago, and we were talking about Joe Buck, and he said, you know, we all look at someone like Howard Cosell as this revered broadcaster, and remember after Thurman Munson died, the long diatribe that he had painting the scene. If Joe Buck, this was Neil's Neil's words, if Joe Buck ever did that, we would crucify him. It would be a bloodbath. So I think sometimes being silent, I think captures all of it or a man a few words captures all of it uh and the last question you are a sabermetrics guy what's the first thing you say to someone that is a non-believer in sabermetrics the first thing i say and i I have to say this often now i to be honest i don't talk about much of it on the radio because i think sometimes it's too niche and you don't want to do that to an average listener like those at them that is just kind of over some people's heads and that's fine but when i talk baseball just with friends or just personally with people like this right now to me it just comes down to this why would you want less information about a player like when front offices go with their new systems and they have these databases and people say oh you know science and numbers what about scouting it's all part of it why wouldn't you throw it all into one big thing and then make your decision like i I just never understood the idea in any walk of life but certainly when you're dealing with millions of dollars for players on not looking at every piece of information possible um to make those decisions. I think we paint these, these sabermetrics guys in the wrong way. I mean, they're just, they're just trying to find the right answer and turning over every rock in the process. I, I never really understood the backlash other than the fact people point to that Billy Bean hasn't won a World Series, but to me that's not a reason that sabermetrics don't work. Uh, I will say this. Those are all great points. I'm not a huge sabermetrics guy, but it seems like every year there's like one stat that I sort of gain and respect more. But... Uh, yeah, you're right on all accounts. I mean, you, you, you want to go in with every stat and number you can, if you're, especially with millions of dollars on the line. So great, great info there from Joe Giglio. I want to thank Joe Giglio for being on the podcast. You can always hear him on WIP 94.1 in Philadelphia and check out his work on NJ.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Joe G-I-G-L-I-O Sports and check out the podcast he hosts on iTunes, the uh Talk is Cheap, Giants podcast, and the Eagles podcast, the No Huddle Show. Joe, I want to appreciate you for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Thanks, Brian. 
So there you have it, Joe Gillio. Uh, once again, I really appreciate him coming on the podcast. So I hope everyone enjoyed that. And, you know, check me out on Monday. Well, you know, you would check it out on Tuesday. Monday, I do the podcast. Tuesday, I release a podcast where I go around the world of sports very quickly. Again, if you're new to the show. And Thursday, we like to have a guest on. So I hope everyone enjoyed. You can always listen to the show on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube. Follow me at BrianBuck13 and at Red Ticket Blues. Like it on Facebook, like it, the show on Facebook, and uh, give a rating or a review or both. Go wild. And with all that being said, I'm out of here.